Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, sex work, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, 1969. 24-year-old Salvatore Sammy the Bull Gravano had spent the last couple of years making a name for himself in the Colombo crime family, one of the five families of the New York Mafia. Sammy had a reputation as a man not to mess with, doling out street justice in the Bensonhurst neighborhood. So when Carmine Persico, a Colombo capo or captain, summoned him, he assumed they might want a little muscle. He was right. A Long Island washing machine distributor was having an affair with Persico's sister-in-law, and he wanted Sammy to teach the guy a lesson. But there was one odd request. Bring back the man's ear. As far as Sammy was concerned, the ear was overkill. But the boss was the boss. The next day, Sammy walked into the man's washer-dryer emporium, there he was, behind the counter. Sammy approached, pulled out a blackjack, and whacked him upside the head. Sammy leapt over the counter and kept beating the owner. Suddenly, half a dozen workers ran out from the back and intervened. As Sammy fought them off, he noticed his target grab the counter to pull himself up. Without even thinking, Sammy smacked the man's hand and sliced off his pinky finger. He grabbed the finger and ran. When he brought it to Carmine Persico, the capo was delighted. It was neither the first nor the last time that Sammy the Bull would prove himself to La Cosa Nostra. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them, and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. This is our first episode on Sammy the Bull Gravano, a once-feared mafia enforcer who famously became an FBI informant. This week, we'll dive into how Sammy Gravano went from a middle-class childhood in Brooklyn to becoming a made man. Next week, we'll explore how the Mafia became a victim of its own success and how Gravano became disillusioned with the mob and the narcissistic John Gotti. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In 1982, 
Sammy Gravano was running the hottest club in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. At 37, he was a devoted husband, successful businessman, and brutally efficient mob enforcer for the Gambino crime family. Life for Sammy the Bull was good. At some point that year, Sammy got word that a Czech gangster named Frank Fiala wanted to buy the club. Fiala brought him a new deal he couldn't turn down. A million dollars for the club with 650,000 of it in cash under the table. Sammy took the deal. On Friday, June 25, 1982, the $650,000 changed hands. However, Signing over the joint would occur the following Monday. Technically, Sammy still owns the club for the rest of the weekend. But the next day, Sammy got a phone call that Fiala had taken over his office in the club. Worse yet, Fiala had brought in a construction crew, armed guards, and Dobermans to guard the doors. He'd already started knocking down walls. Sammy was incensed by the disrespect. As soon as he heard the news, he immediately drove to the club from his farm in New Jersey. When he arrived, he asked his staff if they were okay, then walked into what was still legally his office. Fiala was waiting for him, standing behind the desk, flanked by Dobermans. Sammy wasn't intimidated. He asked Fiala why he was in his office, sitting in his chair. Fiala responded by pulling an Uzi from his desk drawer. He ordered Sammy to sit. Then he proclaimed that he was taking over the club a few days early, and if Sammy had a problem, Fiala would teach him the same way he taught the Colombians. Sammy appeased him, saying that the deal was almost done and the office was Fiala's. But the second that he left the club, Sammy was out for blood. He was a made man, so technically he needed approval from his higher-ups to kill Fiala. But Sammy was too angry to wait around. The following evening, he sent five of his most trusted men to stake out the club's rear exit and left one man on the inside. They waited there all night, planning to ambush Fiala as he was leaving. Finally, in the early morning hours, Fiala left the club with a small entourage. One of Sammy's men called out, Hey, Frank! As Fiala turned, two of Sammy's men emerged from the shadows and shot him in the head. After Fiala went down, one of them put a gun to each eye and blew them out. The next day, Sammy got a call from Paul Castellano, the head of the Gambino family. Castellano was furious. Why would Sammy kill a Czech gangster without permission, no less? What the hell was he thinking? Sammy told his boss that he'd been disrespected in his own club, in his own neighborhood. And when Castellano got all of the facts, he decided to spare Sammy's life. The message throughout New York's underworld was crystal clear. Sammy the Bull Gravano ran Bensonhurst, and he would be threatened by no one, not even his own boss. From the beginning, Sammy Gravano was always a man with a chip on his shoulder. He was a product of the Brooklyn streets. In the early 20th century, Italians flooded into Brooklyn and Bensonhurst became home to many Sicilians. Sammy's parents were no different. 
They immigrated from Sicily before World War II and were determined to assimilate into American society. This meant making sure that their children grew up sheltered from any mafia influence. Of course, that was easier said than done. In Bensonhurst, everyone knew somebody who was connected. When Sammy's father took him to church on Sundays, Sammy would ask who all the well-dressed young men playing dice on the street were. His father would only answer that they were bad men, but they were part of the community. For their part, the Gravanos made a living through more legal means. Sammy's mother found work as a seamstress in Manhattan. Eventually, she convinced the factory owners to invest in a satellite factory in Bensonhurst. They allowed her and her husband to run it. This, of course, meant that Sammy grew up working in his parents' small garment business, keeping the books and manning the phone. And while he flourished in the family business, school was another story. Sammy was dyslexic, and in 1950s Bensonhurst, the schools provided no support. By the time he reached fourth grade, he'd been held back a year, and his resentment at a system that told him he was stupid quickly translated to violence. While Sammy would only ever reach the height of five feet five inches, he learned early on how to carry himself in a fight. His ferocity in the streets, even as a kid, quickly earned him a reputation. One day, when he was around 10, Sammy fought two older boys who were trying to steal his bicycle. When the wise guys saw him fight, they nicknamed him the Bull. By the time he was in middle school, Sammy became affiliated with one of the youth gangs that had become commonplace in New York City. The gang was called the Rampers, and even though he was one of the youngest and smallest, people knew not to mess with him. As Sammy grew older, he became a walking paradox. At home, he was a dutiful son, helping run the family business. Out on the streets, he was getting involved with violent and dangerous people. It was only a matter of time before the worlds collided. That collision happened in 1958 when Sammy was 13. One night, he and his father were sitting at the front of their small garment factory when two huge Irishmen entered the shop, carrying baseball bats. The men didn't give their names, but said that they belonged to a union without specifying which one. They told Sammy's father that his shop was going to join the union, and if he didn't, they'd come back with more men. When the union thugs left, Sammy found himself filled with murderous rage. How could these strangers come in and take a piece of what his family had worked for years to build? He begged his father to do something. His father replied that he would speak to an old family friend, a man named Zuvito. Sammy was confused. How was little old Zuvito going to help? Unsatisfied, Sammy reached out to the rampers, asking for firepower. By the next morning, the 13-year-old had a pistol in his hands. After school that day, Sammy stashed the gun under his belt and hid it with his jacket. Finally, near closing time, there was a knock on the door. His father opened it and let the two Irishmen inside. Sammy curled his fingers around the pistol, but he was surprised by what happened next. This time, the men were polite, 
stepping inside and shaking Mr. Gravano's hand. The man apologized for not knowing he was friends with Zovito. The Gravanos would never have to worry about the union again. Sammy was dumbfounded. After the men left, he asked his father if Zuvito would have killed the men if they didn't back down. Mr. Gravano explained that Zuvito didn't need to. He was part of something much bigger, something that even the union men were afraid of. Sammy pulled out the gun from beneath the desk and showed it to his father. Mr. Gravano told his son that this was not the life for him. Sammy nodded, but secretly, he loved feeling the power of the gun in his hands. As he grew up, it would become an all-too-familiar sensation. Up next, Sammy Gravano joins the Mafia. Now, back to the story. By the time Sammy the Bull Gravano entered high school, he seemed destined for a life on the streets, despite his father's protests. Holding a gun felt good, and it was obvious that school was never going to be his ticket to success. On the occasions when Sammy actually bothered to attend high school, he was usually either hated or ignored by his teachers, and widely regarded as a lost cause. Eventually, he was sent to a remedial school. But Sammy continued to act out and showed no signs of improvement. At the age of 16, he was asked not to return the next year. With school out forever, Sammy focused his attention on his gang, the Rampers. They were young and loosely organized, but in the early 1960s, they worked their way into a sophisticated criminal ecosystem. Fences, bondsmen, lawyers, and of course weapons dealers were all accessible to them. Sammy was an earner for the gang, focusing on car robberies and the occasional armed robbery of a jewelry store. But his total devotion to the rampers was cut short when he had his first brush with the law. It wasn't for robbery or assault, but disrespect for authority. One night in 1961, the 16-year-old Sammy was at an outdoor restaurant, finishing up his dinner with a few friends. Suddenly, a cop car pulled up and a cop started yelling at Sammy and his buddies to get off the street. For Sammy, this cop was no different than the teachers who had pushed him around his whole childhood. So he treated the cop the same way. He backtalked. After a brief war of words, Sammy lunged at the cop and started a brawl. The fighting was quickly broken up by the cop's partner, and Sammy was slapped with handcuffs. With the help of the Rampers' friendly lawyers, Sammy was able to stall the trial and eventually agreed to plead guilty to a misdemeanor. He was hit with a fine, but to the teenager, the whole thing felt like a joke. Unfortunately, not all of Sammy's early run-ins with the law would end with a slap on the wrist. One bad job in 1964 had much more severe consequences. One evening, 18-year-old Sammy and his crew robbed a lumberyard. Guards suddenly appeared, and Sammy was the only one not to make it out. But to Sammy, the arrest was nothing. He knew his lawyers would be able to get him out of this jam in no time. Wrong. While Sammy was awaiting trial, he was drafted into the Vietnam War. 
When Sammy showed up to the draft office, he was told that, due to his pending criminal trial, they would be taking him into the service immediately. Sammy, anti-authoritarian as always, refused to sign the papers, until an FBI agent told him that it was either the military or jail. So, in 1964, Sammy Gravano became a soldier in the U.S. Army. To his surprise, it was a good fit. Sammy quickly excelled both professionally and fiscally. After basic training, he became a loan shark for his fellow privates, managing a book of debts and charging interest as he had learned in the rampers. For two years, Sammy served climbing the ranks. Ironically, he never went to Vietnam, never even stepped foot out of the country. In 1966, the 21-year-old was honorably discharged and returned to Bensonhurst. Back home, he discovered that most of the rampers had moved on. Many believed that they needed to join a larger criminal organization to stay involved in an increasingly dangerous game. Initially, Sammy thought that he and his friends were tough enough on their own. They kept pulling small jobs, earning enough to stay afloat. But soon, there was a new opportunity that even Sammy couldn't say no to. One night in 1968, Sammy was out drinking with some fellow rampers, including his longtime friend, Jimmy Emma. For as long as Sammy had been in the gang, Jimmy had been known as the wildest member. He had a reputation for getting into violent bar fights. And tonight, Jimmy decided to pick a fight with the club's owner, a man known as Mimi. Mimi's real name was Dominic Charlot, and he was part of the Colombo family. The next day, a team of Colombo shooters pulled up to the street corner where the rampers congregated. Jimmy was washing his car when he looked up to see four men emerge from their car, guns trained on him. Jimmy wouldn't live to start another bar fight. Sammy wanted revenge for Jimmy's murder. Everyone in the neighborhood warned them they didn't stand a chance against the Columbos, but if we know anything about Sammy, he wasn't the type to back down from a challenge. What Sammy didn't realize, though, was that the Colombo family had been keeping an eye on him for years. They knew how ferocious he could be. So instead of whacking Sammy to stop his revenge quest, they decided to use the situation to their advantage. One of Sammy's friends, Tommy Spiro, had an uncle who was connected to the Columbos, nicknamed Shorty. So Shorty asked his nephew to introduce him to Sammy. When they met, Shorty got straight to the point. He knew that Sammy was tough, but if he kept acting the way he did without a major crime organization backing him up, he'd get himself killed. Shorty could give him relationships, the chance at real money. And Sammy wouldn't have to do a thing he wasn't already doing on his own. Sammy didn't have a lot of other options. With Jimmy's death and the rest of the rampers growing up and moving on, he would have to choose between joining the big leagues or going straight. Perhaps more importantly, Shorty said everything 23-year-old Sammy wanted to hear. He trusted the older man, and he appreciated the straightforward pitch. He was entering the Colombo family at the bottom level, but at least he knew what he was getting himself into, or he thought he did. 
Sammy didn't fully understand the nature of the system he was joining, and he had no idea the road he was about to go down would lead him into the annals of mob history. Shorty introduced Sammy to his crew, which included his nephew, Tommy Spiro, and a man named Joe Colucci. These two, along with a few others, became Sammy's new brothers-in-arms. They got off to a quick start with a few armed robberies. Thanks to his days in the rampers, Sammy already knew his way around a stick-up. But these heists were much more high stakes. On one occasion, around 1968, Sammy walked into an empty clothing store in Bensonhurst around closing time. He didn't wear a mask so as not to alarm anyone. Once the coast was clear, he pulled a gun on the owner. Tommy and another crew member rushed into the store wearing masks and carrying rifles, and in a matter of minutes, all three men were heading out the door, pockets filled with cash. But things went downhill from there. When the police asked the owner to look through a book of mugshots the next day, he identified Sammy's photo from one of his earlier arrests. Pretty soon, Sammy was once again behind bars. As it turned out, however, the shop's owner had a relationship with the DeCavalcanti family in New Jersey. This connection was essential to his business, and he certainly didn't want to start a war with the Columbos. When Sammy's court date came around, the owner testified that he had been mistaken. It must have been another guy. In return, Shorty apologized to the owner and assured him the Colombo family wouldn't bother him going forward. Once again, Sammy had avoided prosecution. For the next two years, he became involved in more of the Colombo family's schemes. Loan sharking and extortion were their bread and butter, with the occasional bank robbery or stick-up thrown in for flavor. But the Mafia already had plenty of thieves. Sammy was being groomed for something greater. As Sammy understood it, a great mafioso was both a gangster and a racketeer. By his early 20s, Sammy was well-versed in gangster behavior, but he needed to think like a racketeer which meant running a business. A friend of Sammy's let him know that an old maid man in the Gambino family, John Rizzo, was opening an after-hours club in Bensonhurst. Sammy knew this was a perfect opportunity to try his hand at a legitimate business. Sammy gathered together most of his savings, whatever he had left after years of criminal capers, and asked Rizzo if he could buy into the club and manage it. Rizzo loved the idea. It wasn't uncommon for Mafia families to cut each other into businesses to keep the peace. But in Sammy's case, Rizzo may have had a different plan. Sammy wasn't a made man in the Colombo family yet, but he had a reputation. It seems Rizzo wanted to test Sammy to see if the Gambinos might want to take him in as one of their own. Sammy rose to the occasion. When he got the job, the club wasn't even fully built, but Sammy had dabbled in construction. He soon had the joint up and running. With Sammy running the door, the club was an immediate hit. Within six months, he was pulling down $2,000 every week, worth nearly $15,000 today. A 25% cut went to Shorty and the Colombo family. In his first two years with the Columbos, 
Sammy had proved himself to be a fearless fighter. The higher-ups knew that they had someone special in their midst. Some capos even told him that he would be a made man one day. But traditionally, in order to become a made man, you have to murder. And for the first two decades of Sammy's criminal career, he had never done such a thing. Would he be able to actually kill a man? And more to the point, for a free spirit like Sammy, could he do it on orders? That question was finally voiced in early 1970 when Shorty asked Sammy if he was willing to kill for the good of the family. Sammy didn't bat an eye. The answer was yes. But what shocked him was who he was supposed to kill. It wasn't some thug or a member of a rival family, but someone within someone from his own crew. When we return, Sammy Gravano commits his first murder. Now back to the story. By 1970, Sammy the Bull Gravano had been affiliated with the Colombo crime family for two years. And in that time, he'd gained respect from the top levels of the family. Life for the young gangster was fun, fast, and dangerous, and his crew always had his back. But things got more complicated when Shorty Spiro asked him to kill another member of their crew, Joe Colucci. Sammy's first question was why? He'd known Joe for years, and while he wasn't the man's best friend, he had no beef with him. In fact, the two had never even gotten into an argument. But according to Shorty, Joe was actually trying to kill Sammy. The family dynamic was a tad bit more complicated than Sammy had realized. Joe's wife, Camille, was having an affair with Tommy Spiro, Shorty's nephew. At least, that was the rumor. When Joe found out, he wanted Tommy's head. But since Tommy was Shorty's nephew, whacking him was a non-starter. So Joe devised a more devious plan. First, he would kill Shorty. And he would kill Sammy, because if anything happened to Tommy, odds were Sammy would be the one to retaliate. Then, when the heat died down, he would kill Tommy. In Joe's mind, no one would suspect the murders were all tied together. Joe's plan might have worked, had he not confided in one of his associates, a man named Frankie. As soon as Frankie heard the idea, he thought Joe was crazy, and he immediately told Shorty. With this whole story laid out in front of him, Sammy realized that killing Joe wasn't murder. It was self-defense. He didn't think twice about accepting the job. The plan was simple. Sammy, Frankie, and Tommy would go out to a club with Joe, get him drunk, and kill him when he least suspected it. After a long night of partying in the wee hours of the morning, the men wound up at a cafeteria getting a bite to eat. Once they finished their late-night snack, they got into a car and called it a night. Tommy would drive, Joe called shotgun, and Sammy and Frankie would ride in the back. Once they were on the road, all Sammy would have to do was pull the trigger. While they were driving, a Beatles song came on the radio, and Tommy turned it up. Sammy quietly raised his gun and pulled the trigger multiple times. They threw Joe's body onto the street, 
drove home and cleaned the car. At the age of 25, Sammy the Bull Gravano had committed his first murder. It would be far from his last. The murder of Joe Colucci helped cement Sammy's reputation within the mafia as someone to look out for. And as 1970 turned into 1971, Sammy was feeling good. He got married that May to 18-year-old Debbie Shabetta. He opened a successful shop that sold stolen clothes, working with Tommy and his family. For the first six months, business was booming. But just as fast as the shop took off, it would stumble. One day, when Sammy was in the shop, a woman came in asking for a return. When he asked for a receipt, she said she hadn't been given one. When he asked who checked her out, she told him it was Ralph Spiro, Tommy's father. After checking the books, Sammy realized she wasn't the only one who was missing a receipt. On several occasions, when Ralph sold something, he pocketed the cash and didn't note it in the books. In normal business, Sammy would fire Ralph for stealing. But this was La Cosa Nostra. If Sammy didn't tread lightly, things would get bloody. So, Sammy simply told Tommy and Ralph that he was done with the clothing business. Without him, the store soon folded. Sammy had walked away from some good money, sure, but at least Ralph wasn't cheating him anymore. But as soon as the shop closed, Ralph Spiro started to make even more trouble for Sammy. Sometime towards the end of 1971, one of Sammy's crew members, Ralphie Ronga, died in a shootout with the police. After the funeral, Sammy, Ralph, and some of their associates went to a bar to have a drink in Ralphie's honor. When they arrived, Sammy was surprised to see Ralphie's widow there too. As Sammy tells it, she came on to him and he rejected her. But Ralph Spiro started telling a different story that Sammy was the one making the moves on Mrs. Ronga. Sammy knew that the rumors would put his life in danger. Making a pass at a dead friend's wife the day of his funeral was a capital offense in the mafia. Sure enough, the next day, he was summoned to a meeting with Shorty. Sammy needed some backup, so he decided to ask an impartial third party to come and vouch for him, his old Gambino friend, John Rizzo. Once Sammy explained the situation, Shorty was on his side. But to avoid any further conflicts, Shorty and John Rizzo came to a life-changing arrangement. Sammy would be moved to the Gambino family. Sammy would now be managed by Rizzo's own boss, Salvatore Tato Orello. As luck would have it, 26-year-old Sammy quickly warmed to the new dynamic. Sammy had liked Shorty, but in Toddo, he found a true mentor and a friend. He would spend many hours in the old gangster's vegetable garden, learning the tricks of survival, honesty, and integrity. Sammy was all for that. Unfortunately, the financial side of life in the Gambino family didn't start out great. Rizzo's club wasn't as popular as it had once been, and Sammy was getting a little old for armed robbery. His finances became more pressing once he and Debbie started having children. Some weeks, there was barely enough money to put food on the table. 
Sammy started to wonder if maybe he could escape Bensonhurst, get out of the life of crime he always thought he'd be fated to, perhaps even go completely straight. So one day in 1974, Sammy asked Toto if he could leave the life. To his surprise, Toto wished him luck. There was no animosity, no hard feelings. Sammy, all of a sudden, was free. For almost a year, it seemed like Sammy was really going straight, working in construction. The pay was okay, the work was satisfying. He and Debbie even started looking at houses in the suburbs. After about 10 months had passed, 29-year-old Sammy got a life-changing call. He and an old ramper friend, Ali Boy Cuomo, were being charged for double homicide. In 1969, a pair of Coney Island auto body shop owners were gunned down, and the NYPD had been aggressively working the case ever since. To this day, Sammy maintains he had never even heard about these murders until he found out he was being charged with them. He did, however, know his accuser, Michael Hardy. Hardy was from Sammy's old ramper days. He had been arrested for kidnapping and as part of his plea bargain, he claimed Sammy and Ali Boy had committed the murders on behalf of the Colombo family. Initially, Sammy's solution was to run. But after a week on the lam, he realized he couldn't just leave his family like that. If he wanted to fight the charges, there was only one man who could help him. Sammy found Toddo was willing to lend a hand, like always. He wasn't sure that the wise old gangster was happy to see him. Once Sammy explained his situation, Toddo told him that the family would take care of it, but that it would cost him. The charges against Sammy were eventually dropped, but since Toto had paid some of his legal fees, he wasn't exactly free. He was now tied to Toto for good. For the next two years, Sammy worked like an animal to pay off his debt, and he realized it felt right. This was his life. There was no running from it. All that was left was to become a made man. In 1976, he finally got that call. For almost 20 years, the books had been closed. No new members were officially accepted into the American Mafia. But by 1976, they had finally reopened the books. And soon after, to Sammy's surprise, Tato Arello tapped him for membership. If Sammy had any reservations at this stage, he never told anyone. For the 31-year-old with two young children, this offer felt like his best shot at stability, prosperity, and community. When the day came, Sammy entered the living room of one of his Gambino associates wearing his finest suit and found a circle of silent men waiting to be initiated. One by one, they would be called down to the basement. Finally, Sammy's name was called. He entered the smoke-filled basement to find a large table surrounded by men. At the head of the table were Paul Castellano, Neil Della Croce, and Joe Gallo. Boss, underboss, and consigliere. The rest of the men were either capos, including Toddo, or the newly initiated. 
Sammy swore his allegiance to the Gambino family and promised that he would kill for Castellano. Most importantly, he swore to uphold Omerta, the code of silence. His loyalty was to his family. No one was to know about what they did. His trigger finger was pricked, the droplets of blood falling onto the image of a saint. And then that image was lit on fire. With the oaths sworn, Castellano intoned in Italian, In honor of our brotherhood, I untie the knot. Everyone lowered their hands. Sammy was invited to join them, and Castellano continued, In honor of the brotherhood, I tie the knot. Sammy the Bull Gravano was officially a made man. But as Sammy stood and smiled, welcomed into the secret society he'd been lurking around for so long, he had no idea that in less than 20 years, he would betray them all. As he climbed the ranks, he would be forced to question exactly who he was loyal to, his family or his family. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we explore Sammy's rise to underboss in the Gambino family and his eventual betrayal of the dapper Don, John Gotti. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Gareth Imperato with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Merton.